The Gospel according to John. We will get into this more, but let me just explain to you the reason why it's called the Gospel according to John and not simply the Gospel of John is it's John's perspective. We have four perspectives. We don't have four Gospels. We have one Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have four different gentlemen who experience Jesus in one way or another or talk to witnesses of Jesus, as in Luke's case, and together they form the Gospel. Together they form four different perspectives as God determined so that we could look at Jesus from four angles and see Him in four different ways. The Gospel according to John. Now, before we get there, let me just add my invite to both tonight, the uh, Bridge Family Christmas, and Wednesday night. I invite you all to be back Wednesday night at 8.30. It is, as I've said many times, my favorite service of the year. There's a, a scene in the uh, Walton's Homecoming Christmas where Grandpa and Grandma Walton are sitting in the living room and they're listening to the radio. And uh, no TV, right? Just the radio. It's back in the 30s. And, and I love the scene because in that moment, the radio announcer says, on this most holy night of the year, Christians around the world are celebrating the birth of Christ. And so we seek for it to be a holy night. Before the carnage of Christmas morning, we seek for it to be a holy night that if you give God a gift this Christmas, give Him the gift of a couple hours on Christmas Eve. We will come together, we'll worship, we'll spend a little more time in His Word together, we'll share in communion, and we'll end with a candle lighting and a very special time focused on the Lord Jesus. So that's Wednesday night. Now, we're in the season, right? Tuesday night of this past week, my family went down to the ACT Theater for something that we have set apart on almost an annual basis now, that is the viewing of A Christmas Carol. If you haven't seen it, you need to go down to the Act Theater and check it out. It's, it's marvelous. They do such a fantastic job. But we saw A Christmas Carol there in this theater in the round, scared my little ones to death. It was wonderful. And after the fact, we were walking outside, and my son Corey said, You know, Dad, great stories always have great opening lines. Great stories. A Christmas Carol begins with, Marley was dead, to begin with. I mean, that just grabs you right away, doesn't it? Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. Corey got me thinking about great openings. And actually, in preparation for this morning, I started looking into great opening lines. I have poured over the last several days countless opening lines of great works of literature. I started in Wikipedia and went from there, you know. And really started to think about what, what lines uh, men have chosen, women have chosen to, to begin their novels, their literature, their writings. And there are some great ones out there. And I began having a list. I was going to give you a list of them this morning, but you know, I realized something literally when I woke up this morning, and that is by all comparison, the works of man fail. There is nothing like the opening of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have seen this once again. The Bible is in a class all by itself. Listen to this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now that is a great opening line. And Father, as we open up now to the Gospel of John, we ask that You will pour out truth. That in the simplicity of these words, we would discover the depth of our God. That we would be taken right into the presence of our Lord. That, Lord, Your words would leap off the page by the power of Your Spirit, enliven our hearts, change our lives, draw us nearer to You, and make a difference in the world in which we live. And that's not a tall order when we ask it of our Father. May these great words produce great things, greater things, Father, for us in this world, to the glory of Jesus, and by the power of Your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. So a great 
story deserves a great opening. The greatest story ever told has four great openings. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Great opening. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Another great opening. Luke chapter 1 verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Great openings. Matthew opens with the glorious genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus. Mark jumps immediately into the action and the adventure of Jesus' ministry. Luke leads off like an investigative attorney, unpacking carefully researched eyewitness testimonies in the gospel that he presents. John, John is unlike all the other three. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, John just stands apart from the very first line. While the others begin at the turn of the century, John goes back to the beginning. While Matthew and Luke give us Bethlehem and the manger, John takes us into the Logos, the very reason of God. The Logos. Jesus truly is the reason for the season. The mind, the mentality, the thoughts, the heart of God, the Word. We'll get there in a minute. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called together. The synoptic Gospels, the word synoptic means see together. They are the three that are seen together because of their many similarities. Because they share so many stories. And there are those who have come out, commentators, scholars, thinkers, who have said, well, one of the Gospels was probably first, and the other two kind of base their Gospel off of the first. We believe Mark was the first written. And then Matthew, and then Luke. And they were all written very close together, probably 20 to 30 years, or within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' time on the earth in the 50s A.D. Sometime between 50 and 60 A.D., We see the writing of those first three. John's came last, the fourth. The early church fathers, such as Jerome, Irenaeus, Papias, men who lived from 100 A.D. up to about 200 A.D., referred to John's Gospel as the fourth. We recognize from tradition, but also from these early writers and these early disciples who followed the apostles, we understand that John was the fourth one to come along. All the evidence points to his writing very late in the first century. Perhaps as much as 60 years after Jesus returned to heaven. We believe writing anywhere from about 85 to 100 A.D., depending on which scholar you ask, I lean closer to 100. There are some indications that John didn't even plan on writing a perspective at all. That he felt that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had it all covered. It was just fine. But, but apparently, and again, from early uh, accounts, John's friends all around him said, John, you got to write. you got to tell what you know. you got to put down on page what, what, you, what you've been telling us. But John held off until inspired by the Spirit. He felt truly led by God to write the Gospel according to John. I'm so glad he did. Can you imagine not having this gospel, those of you who have read it, who have studied it? What he wrote is significantly distinct from the three synoptic gospels. Let me just give you a few comparisons here uh, to think through, to understand. And we'll see these become alive in the page as we study through this amazing gospel account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily take place in the Galilee. John primarily takes place in Jerusalem. The vast majority of the experiences we see that John shares about Jesus happened there in the holy city. Now in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels are more historical, biographical, incredibly important. And yet John is less biographical and more evangelical, as we'll see. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share many stories um, 
all together, as we say, they're the synoptic gospels, so they they have many shared stories. 90% of the material found in the gospel according to John is found nowhere else. So it truly is more information that we did not have until John put it down. Matthew, Mark, Luke share the accounts of Jesus' birth, His baptism, His temptation, the parables, the Last Supper, Gethsemane, the Ascension. These are not even mentioned in John. Instead, John shares what have been called the seven signs, that is, miracles, seven miracles of Jesus that point to specifically His divine nature. Watch for it. John is carefully selective of the miracles he shares. Many other miracles were done by Jesus, but John shares the seven that he felt that he was led to teach were most representative of the divinity of Christ Jesus. John will also give us the glorious I am statements. Seven of them in the Gospel of John. In Matthew and Luke, the Christmas story, as we like to call it, is gloriously fleshed out. In John, there is no Christmas story. Though Jesus does celebrate Hanukkah. And I'll show you that when we get there. But in the Gospel of John, rather than the birth story being fleshed out, the Word itself is fleshed out. Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal a lot with evil spirits and demonic confrontations that Jesus had. In the Gospel of John, there's not a single demonic confrontation mentioned. In fact, the Spirit that's focused on in the Gospel of John is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share various resurrection stories of which Luke contains the most, but you get to John and he has more resurrection stories of Jesus than the other three Gospels combined. John shares seven remarkable accounts. Isn't that interesting? Seven miracles of Jesus. Seven I Am statements. Seven remarkable stories of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All within the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have historical evidence of having been written when they were written. Various surviving fragments and copies of those Gospels over the years. But the oldest surviving fragment of the New Testament is from John chapter 18 and it dates back to before 150 A.D. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written in classical Greek. So if you're a Greek scholar, you would recognize that. The the language is more difficult. It, It takes a little higher level of language skill. John is written in what I would call street Greek. It is the lowest form of Greek. It is the most common Greek spoken by the most common of Greek people. The Gospel of John along with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In fact, if you're a student of Greek, that's where you begin. You begin with John because John is so easy to read, at least in terms of language. You see, while the others are powerful in prophecy and parables and teaching, the Gospel according to John is the most profound in terms of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And I think that's marvelous. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame those that are strong. So He chooses the most base and basic of Greek language to explain the depths of the heart of God. Jerome says John excels in the depths of divine mysteries. The commentator Charles Erdman says, its stories are so simple that even a child will love them, but its statements are so deep, no philosopher can fathom them. The pastor of the 19th century, A.T. Pearson, wrote, the Gospel of John touches the heart of Christ. As we read through, I believe you'll see, John is like a wading pool for the smallest child, and yet like an ocean for the greatest theologian. You can drown in this gospel in the wonders of what is proclaimed here. More than all the others, the gospel according to John reveals the very mind of Christ. We hear things about what Jesus was thinking, how he was feeling, what his inclinations were. In the gospel of John, we get nowhere else. (laughs) Not that we can fully fathom John's or, or Jesus' thoughts. 
I mean, his thoughts, the mind of God is unfathomable. In fact, even with the four vivid perspectives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John combined, John 21 verse 25 tells us there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So in essence, you can say with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we do not have a complete gospel. The gospel is Jesus. We have the complete truth, but we don't have the complete story because if we were to have a complete story, there's not enough room in the world to contain it. Now, John won't name himself a single time in this book. Here's the closest that we get to an actual name given for John, the apostle, John, the follower of Jesus. John chapter 21, verse 2 says, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. The sons of Zebedee were James and John. That's as close as we get to even hearing John's name mentioned one time in this gospel record. Well, that being the case, how do we really know John wrote this? I want to read something for you, and this is a little technical. It's from the uh, commentary by F.F. Bruce. Bruce is a Bible scholar par excellence, and in his commentary he says the following. The fourth gospel, like the three synoptic gospels, is anonymous. It does not bear its author's name. Did you realize that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of the four gospels bear the name of the writer. None of them tell us that the writer, Matthew wrote this, or, or Luke wrote this. We make assumptions based on the evidence, internal and external evidence. But none of them name themselves as they write their Gospels. Man, what a lost opportunity to name drop. (laughs) If it was the Gospel according to Rick, it would begin, I, Rick Crawford, pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, (laughs) having been doth duly in the presence of the Lord, now sit down to write of all that I experienced and proclaim unto thee, These great words of my glorious mentality. And we don't get that from the gospel writers. They don't name themselves. He says, the title, according to John, is a label attached to it. When the four gospels were gathered together and began to circulate as one collection, by the way, we believe that was around 100 to maybe 125. So not long, within the century of Jesus returning to heaven... The four Gospels are now beginning to circulate in the church. But F.F. Bruce goes on. He says they circulated as one collection, and it was according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John, so that people could distinguish the four Gospels. He says it is noteworthy that while the four canonical Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, could afford to be published anonymously, the apocryphal Gospels which began to appear from the mid-2nd century onward, that is about 350 A.D. onward, all falsely claimed to have been written by apostles or other persons closely related to the Lord. The four legitimate Gospels do not name the human writers. The apocryphal Gospels, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, these, these books that came out later on, all grab on to a a well-known name among the apostles or among the early fathers to try and, and bolster their legitimacy. The point is this. None of the legitimate Gospels name drop because the only name of interest to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is Jesus Christ. But the internal and external evidence of this book reveal four things about the writer about the man, John, who put the pen to paper. Number one, note this, it was written by a Jewish disciple. As you read through this, it is unquestionably Jewish. He is unquestionably familiar with the times and the cultures, uh, and the culture of the Jews of Judea when Jesus walked through the streets of Jerusalem. It is written as a Jew would write it. It's understandable from a Jewish perspective. You're going to see many things that if you were not Jewish, you would completely miss. We'll try to point those out as we go along. But it was clearly written by a Jewish disciple of Jesus. It was, secondly, written by an eyewitness of the events. Unlike Luke, who says, I gathered eyewitness accounts of those who were with Jesus, of those who saw these things, and I wrote from those. This gospel writer says, I was there. 
I experienced this. I saw this with my own eyes. John 19.35 He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. John 21.24 This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things and we know that the testimony is true. John says, I was there, man. I saw it. I'm just telling you what I saw. Which is why the writer of this book can say, we saw His glory full of grace and truth. This is an eyewitness account. This book is written, number three, by a Jewish disciple, by an eyewitness, number three, written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's one of the coolest characteristics, most uh, precious characteristics of this book. Five times the author refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times. John 13.23. I didn't put this up there, I don't think, did I? 13.23. No, so you might want to jot these down. John 13.23. John 19.26. John 20, verse 2. John 21, verse 7. And John 21, verse 20. And if you miss those, we'll come back to them as we study. Five times he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's clearly John. See, we know John was among the twelve apostles chosen. We know that from the Synoptic Gospels. We know also that John was part of Jesus' inner circle, the inner three, along with Peter and James. John was there. They were the three taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the three taken into the back room where Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the three who got kind of some special treatment. They went deep into the garden with Jesus to pray. Peter, James, and John. But we also know that not only was John part of the twelve and part of the three, it appears from all the writings that John was Jesus' closest friend on earth. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now some might say that's a little arrogant. Claiming to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, come on, what about the others? Well, the others were there, but I'm the disciple Jesus loved. You know, it's like saying, I'm his favorite. And by the way, I am. (laughs) And so are you. Amen. There's not a person alive who's not a favorite of the Lord. And John recognized that. He says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's saying, we were close. Jesus and I. He's saying, and when I discovered who He really was, I couldn't believe He would love me. Can you imagine what it was like for John to see Jesus in the Revelation? Wow. I mean, in the resurrection would be stunning enough. But as an old man on the island of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1 tells us he was in the Lord's day, in the spirit of the Lord's day, when he received a revelation of Jesus. Not just words, he saw Jesus. He describes what he saw. It blew him away. It stopped his heart. And John would see this. And can you imagine at that point in your life, having walked with Jesus, having camped out with Jesus, having laughed with Jesus and cried with Jesus and eaten with Jesus and slept there on the ground under the stars with Jesus, having been in His entire ministry and suddenly as an old man to see Him in all of His glory, how could you but think anything other than, He loves me. How is that possible? I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. I'm not sure there's a more profound statement in Scripture. John says it. And if you're with John, you can't believe that someone like Jesus could possibly love someone like you. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The book was written by a Jewish disciple, an eyewitness. It was written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. And finally, number four, it was written by John, the son of Zebedee. The earliest church fathers give us external credit for this. They say John wrote the gospel. Well, who said that? Papias did. Papias was a disciple of John's. Discipled by old John the Apostle himself. Papias, who lived around 100 A.D. And we have writing from Papias that says John wrote the fourth gospel. Any questions? We also have Irenaeus. 
Irenaeus, a favorite of mine, who was a disciple of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. So a disciple of the of a disciple of John himself, who lived around 180 A.D., Polycarp also said, "Yeah, John wrote it. We know John wrote it." The early church understood that John wrote it. That was the not just a tradition handed down over hundreds of years, but a tradition handed down over a few years from the apostle himself. Why did John write his gospel account? Turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The end of the chapter, verse 30. John tells us his purpose in writing this book. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. By the way, a little side note for you. Just read this the other day and it's interesting and, and it's absolutely true. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that word Son in the Greek is huios. Huios. When Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, the word huios is always used. The word, word child, technon, is never used of Jesus. The Son of God. It's understood, it would be perfectly understood in Greek culture and in Jewish culture especially, that that word huios for Son has to do with the heir. You can be the huios and not even be a blood relative. You can be adopted and become the huios. The heir, and the heir was, as understood then, that we don't understand this now, but the heir was equal to the one who would be leaving the inheritance. So when Jesus is called the Son of God, the huios of theos, as it were, in the Greek, He's the heir of the Father. He is equal to the Father in all things. We see Son and go, well, He's just the Son of God. He's not God. No, to be the Son of God, He must be equal to the Father. And that word huios is only used of Jesus. Again, child is not used. Even if you see child in a translation, that's not what the word is. Huios, the Son of God. Anyway, that was you got that one for free this morning. I might not even share that next service. <laughs> but again, the purpose of the book is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Great story. Mike McIntosh, who is the pastor of uh, Harvest uh, Christian Fellowship down in San Diego, uh, well known in the Calvary Chapel movement, Mike McIntosh has quite a story. A hippie drug user in the late 60s, along with so many of the other guys who became (laughs) fantastic pastors in the Calvary Chapel movement, men whose lives were radically changed. Well, Mike McIntosh was one of those. So he and Greg Laurie were together visiting a mental institution in Southern California in the early 1970s. Greg Laurie at that time did not look like Greg Laurie does today. Greg Laurie at that time had long hair and a beard. He had the Jesus look that so many of the young men in the Jesus movement had at that time. Long beard, long hair. He's there with Mike McIntosh. They're in this mental institution visiting some patients there. Mike McIntosh walks up to one of the patients and says, Would you like to meet Jesus personally? The patient turns to Greg Glory, shakes his hand and says, Nice to meet you, Jesus. <laughs> Would you like to meet Jesus personally? See, that's why John wrote this gospel. That we might meet Him personally. That we might come to know Him on a personal level. John would introduce you. Introduce me to Jesus. And if you believe you've known Jesus all your life, or you've walked with Jesus a long time, John comes along and says, let me reintroduce Him to you. Let me bring you back to who He really is. And walk with that in your relationship with God. Listen closely because this is absolutely critical in understanding what John is up to here. John does not offer a system of belief. John offers a Savior to believe in. And that makes or breaks churches in this world. 
Churches that are all about belief systems. In my humble opinion, the biggest turnoff to Christianity in the world today is churches that try to prove a point or defend a creed rather than just introduce people to Jesus Christ. That is the role of the church. Not to protect our doctrinal statements. This is our doctrinal statement, the Word of God. And the point of the Word of God is to introduce us to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what we're supposed to be about. Not standing up and saying, but this is my creed. I don't care what your creed is. Your creed will not save you. Jesus Christ can only save you. And so we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as Paul said. We focus on Jesus. Whether we're in Genesis or Revelation, we look to Jesus Christ because He is the Savior. He is the point. John 5.39 You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of Me. And you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life, Jesus said. Cheryl and I had breakfast this last week with a young couple. Young couple I really like. And we're doing some pre-marriage counseling and talking with them. And the the young man is very open. And we've been very open together. He considers himself at this point agnostic. He was raised in church. And I said, tell me about this. Why? Why why are you agnostic? How did you get to this point? He said, well, I took a class in college. And I said, strike one. I took a class in college where we began to compare all the different creeds and doctrines and dogmas and belief systems in different denominations, in Protestantism and Catholicism across the board. And he said there were so many differences and so many uniquenesses in all these different ones. And I looked at them all and I just said they can't all possibly be right. And I said, you know what? You're right. They're not all right. I said, you know what? Sometimes at the Bridge Fellowship we get it wrong. Which is why we don't want to present a creed. It's why we present Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because I guarantee you this, when you present Jesus, you're right every time. But when you present a background, a tradition, a theology, a way of viewing Scripture, instead of just taking it at face value, instead of just presenting Jesus, you're going to get it wrong. I have gotten it wrong multiple times. The most difficult preaching I ever do is when I'm trying to, you know, weed my way through the minefield of different doctrines. But when it comes to Jesus, simple, true, absolute. Let's look at John's opening statement and understand this better. He begins again with that great beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm not sure it gets any better than that. That is just great writing. We call the coming of Jesus into the world, we call it the Incarnation. Incarnation is simply a word that means to take on bodily or carnal form. Incarnation, that's where it comes from. Carnal form, carnality. Physical flesh, human flesh. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. It's one of the wildest prophecies ever given. One that people have tried to explain away but cannot. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. Okay, that's flesh. And she will call his name Emmanuel. That's spirit. God with us. Those two things in every other instance would be disparate, would not fit together. Jesus alone is absolutely unique. He alone is flesh and spirit. I'm talking more than you and I will ever be, will ever understand. He alone is eternal God and man in the flesh. Wow. And that's the incarnation, the idea of God putting on flesh. Isaiah says, Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful. And he is. Counselor, and he does. And here's where it gets interesting. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. How can this Son given to us, who we know is Jesus, how can He be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
unless He is mighty God and eternal Father. The Incarnation. That is, Jesus existed before coming in carnal human flesh 2,000 years ago. John is going to take us through those seven I am statements of Jesus to show this. I am the bread. I am the life or the light. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And finally, number seven, I am the true vine. The I am statements. Of course, it all, in my mind, culminates with an eighth I am statement, which is a standalone I am statement. Jesus said in John 8:58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And it's not just bad English. Before Abraham was born, ego me in the Greek. In the Hebrew, Yahweh. I am that I am. Moses asked, what shall I tell the children of Israel? Your name. And God said, you go tell them, I am that I am Yahweh. Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am. And it freaked out the Jews because they knew exactly what he was saying. And truly, as we've seen over the years of our study through the Hebrew Scriptures, now that we have completed that aspect of the Scriptures, we know, we've seen, Jesus was there. Jesus showing up again and again and again in various stories and various ways. The Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, shows up. The messenger shows up. And we've covered that time and time again. Jesus was there. But understand this. John does not begin with the incarnation. He doesn't begin with Jesus who was there prior to His coming 2,000 years ago. He goes all the way back to the beginning. Not 2,000 years, not 3, not 4, 6,000 years or more depending on your perspective. And I know there are some even in the church who say, no, it's an old earth. The earth has to be 4.5, 4, 4.6, 4.7. I'm not, it gets bigger and bigger. They keep adding because they have to. You know, 4.8 billion years old. The old earth theory, and it is only theory. There are those of us who believe in a young earth. Who think the earth is as old as the Bible tells us it is. About 6,000 years. I won't get into that today. But what John does is he starts at the beginning, not with the uh, not with the pre-incarnate Christ. He begins with note this number one. I'll give you three quick things and we're done. The pre-existent word. That is before the existence of all created things. For John to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That means at the very beginning, at creation, the Word was already there. This one about whom he is speaking was already present, already there, pre-existent, pre-creation. That's mind-blowing. And it's not by accident that John begins with the same grand opening as Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible begins in another great, glorious opening. It draws you in immediately. Oh, that's cool. I want to see this. In the beginning, God. You see, before the creation, God was there. Before a single thing was spoken into being, God was there. Alexander McLaren wrote, The threefold utterance in verse 1 carries us into the depths of eternity before time or creatures were. Genesis and John both start in the beginning. But while Genesis works downward from that point and tells us what followed, John works upward and tells us what preceded. In other words, at the start of created understanding, the Word already was and already was with God. Coexistent. Co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. Interesting, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells us God was there. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 tells us the Spirit was there brooding over the waters. And John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us Jesus was there, but He had to be. Of course He was. And we heard this same truth proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah. Who says in Isaiah 45 verse 21, Declare and set forth your case. God speaking. 
Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. There's none except me. God says there's only one Savior. And He's me. Who bears the title Savior? Jesus. Savior. Yasha in the Hebrew, Yeshua. Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel Gabriel said to Joseph, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wait, is Jesus the Savior or is God the Savior? Yes. Because in the beginning was the Word. Jesus was there. It has always been first person personal with God. It's always been. And Isaiah 48 verse 12 says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. And I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. And in Revelation 21 verse 6, Jesus says it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Well, is it God or is it Jesus? Yes. Again, yes. Jesus says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And listen, I will be his God and he will be my son. Wow. I I don't even know how someone can read that and say, well, yeah, but but in, in the whole trinity at least my doctrine my creed teaches that there's god the father and and then there's jesus the son and then kind of the holy spirit if you know they're they're in certain levels one no the bible teaches jesus is equal to the father is equal to the spirit one god three in one but rick i don't understand that neither do i he's god His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. You will not understand it. In fact, my friends, we will never understand it. We're going to be 10 billion years into history. And we're going to be trying to understand the concept of the Trinity. In His presence. And we're still going to go, man, this is blowing my mind. God is awesome. Why does John who seeks to simply communicate who Jesus is, why does he use a term like the Word? Why not just say in the beginning was Jesus? And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. I mean, it would be a little easier for us to get, right? We'd be, okay, I, I get that. The simple answer is this. We communicate with words, right? And Jesus is the Word that communicates God. So John starts from a very simple perspective to unfold an absolutely profound truth. And honestly, our language, our English translation, is inadequate to capture the depth and the power of the word logos. L-O-G-O-S. It's a word every believer should know. Because it's the Greek word chosen by John to write, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The word. This Greek word logos in 600 BC was first used by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. And he used it to express the divine reason or universal plan which coordinates an altering and changing universe. The the mentality, the the divine understanding beyond all created things. Uh, Heraclitus says, let's use the word logos to describe and define that. John uses it here to express the mind and heart of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Speaking about Jesus. Now, there's been some debate among Bible students of different creeds. You getting the point that I'm kind of down on creeds this morning? (laughs) And there are those who would elevate one word over another. And in fact, in all of our parachurch ministries and organizations, people love to grab, you know, Greek words and different words. And there's like Rima ministries and there's, and there's Logos ministries and you don't see any Grapho ministries. 
<laughs> but those are the three words that are translated word in the New Testament. Note this, it's important. Logos, which we see here in John 1. Rima, which means the spoken word. And grapho, which graphic, that's where we get the word graphic, means the written word. The logos, the spoken word, and the written word. But listen, by John's use of the word logos, we got to understand, without the logos, you don't have the rima. Without the logos, you don't have the grapho. The logos comes first. The logos is where it all begins. And the spoken word comes from the logos of God. And the written word comes again from the logos of God. He is the source, the mind, the reason of the spoken and the written words. Jesus is the logos. But Rick, isn't that just arguing over semantics? Listen, when God spoke, let there be light. Genesis 1-3 creation happened coming from and through the Logos Yeshua Jesus Christ skip verse 2 just for a moment and look at verse 3 all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being when God said let there be light the word spoke the Logos spoke You could say the Logos spoke the Rima and we have it in the Grapho so we can look back and read it. But it begins with the heart of God. Colossians 1.15 says He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Some have said, oh, firstborn. See, He's firstborn. No, you don't understand. Firstborn means the inheritor, the heir. The heir of all creation, not the firstborn created. Jesus is not created. Do you know that? Jesus never had a beginning. He is without beginning and without end. Hebrews 7 tells us. The Logos, the heart of God. Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And you want a mind blower? Okay, chew on this. What was God's name in pre-existent eternity? I hear Jesus, I hear I am. Here's the problem. Those words didn't exist. So what was God's name? Was it Yeshua? Was it Elohim? Was it Adonai? Was it Yahweh, the great I Am? Understand this. These are all words that describe or define or explain in their meaning something of God. I I mean, this is, again, it's mind-boggling to think because we were not around in pre-existent eternity. Anyone? No, we weren't there. (laughs) How did the angels and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, how did they communicate? How did they speak? We have the written word. Well, yeah, well, they spoke Hebrew. No, I think that Hebrew words, language was given to man to speak. And even God saying, let there be light. What did that sound like? Well, Rick, it obviously sounded like this. Let there be light. No, no. What, what words were used? If you, if you think too much about this, you'll start to get a headache. And you'll need to like watch Spongebob just to kind of clear your head out. Before all things existed, understand what better word than Logos to describe the pre-existent Jesus? In the beginning was was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. The phrase with God is prostheos. Prostheos. It means... Pros, with, it's a good translation, but it also can be translated toward or, or facing. And prostheos here, it's written, it's a preposition, and it indicates reciprocal towardness. 
Let me give you a more practical way of, of explaining reciprocal towardness. It means leaning into each other. And the Word was leaning into God who was leaning into the Word. Last night we're, uh, we're down at the um, uh, watching the Nutcracker Ballet. My daughter Naomi was in the Nutcracker. She was a boy, a soldier, and a snow flurry. <laughs> She's the cutest little snow flurry, i got to tell you. Just imagine Naomi in a pure little white outfit with that little black face just shining. <laughs> flurry, I mean, it's adorable. Anyway, so we're sitting there, and it's Cheryl on one side and Anna Marie on the other side, and my wife and my daughter are leaning in. At one point, while Cheryl was videotaping the snow flurries, I was leaning this way, Anna Marie was leaning in this way, her head was on my shoulder, leaning in, and I thought, this is reciprocal towardness. This would be inappropriate if it was me and Jackie Shorthouse. Right? Wouldn't that be a little weird? You walk into the Nutcracker Ballet and there sit, you know, Cheryl and Rick and Jackie, and Rick and Jackie are leaning in? That's not, you know, now Tom and Jackie, that's cool. I lean into my daughter because there's an affectionate relationship between us. I lean into my wife because, and she leans into me. When Cheryl and I sit down together, we want shoulders touching. Often we're holding hands. A reciprocal towardness. And that starts to at least maybe minutely approach the concept of a father and son of the Word with God, leaning into God who is leaning into the Word towardness. Face to face for all eternity, which makes it much more easy to understand why it would be so painful for Jesus at the cross to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Prostheos, leaning in. John 17, verse 5, Jesus said, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Again, you can't read this stuff and not understand the divinity of Jesus, Jesus as God. John further clarifies at the end of verse 1, and the Word was God. He was with God, and He was God. And if you've ever questioned or wondered about the true nature of Jesus, John explains it in the most simple yet profound of terms. Jesus is God. The Word is God. And in John 1.18, he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And we'll explain more of that on Christmas Eve. Jesus explained God not in word, but as the Word. Still need more? You're in the right Gospel portrait here. John 14, verse 8, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? I just love the way Jesus teaches. Can you imagine the look on Jesus' face when He said that to Philip? Show you who? Show you the Father? How long have we known each other? And you still don't get it? He says, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Here's an amazing offer. We have this, uh, what do we call it? The, the first note, the pre-existent word. We have the eternal communion. Jesus with God. God with Jesus. The eternal ongoing communion. And Jesus invites you to enter that. Jesus invites you and me to enter into eternal communion with the Father and the Son to lean in to that kind of closeness and affection. Listen to this. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of His disciples, but for those also who believe in Me through their word. That's all the rest of us. That they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that You sent me. Let me encourage you to lean into Jesus. 
Because He desires that kind of affection. He would sit with you at the Nutcracker Ballet and He would lean in. Will you lean in to Him? Verse 4. There's so much here. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Number three, third and final note here. The pre-existent Word. We have the eternal communion. Number three, the divine illumination. In Him was the life, and the life was the light of men. So far, John has written from the upper side, the divine side. Suddenly he moves to the lower side, the human side. Why did Jesus come? In His own words, John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly to the overflowing. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. So understand, without Jesus, the Word of God, life itself, would not exist. In Him was life, the Word tells us. And it's this life that not only breathes life into existence, but brings, listen, but brings light into dreary darkness. At the creation of the world, darkness was there. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Things were dark. I won't get into this right now, but the difference between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is pretty stirring. Pretty stunning. And if you want to think through these things, I would encourage you to go all the way back 11 years to Genesis 1-1 and listen to the teaching. It's online. You can hear it. But there was darkness that settled in to a messed up situation. I just put it that way. Darkness. Jesus says, not only am I life, not only does life begin, not only does life come from the Word, but light comes to the life. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, it says that He settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 9.2, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. You want to know what the difference is between abundant life like Jesus offers and mundane existence? Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Skip ahead to verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Or that can be translated, there was the true light which enlightens every man coming into the world. Either way it works. The true light. And by the way, men there, when you see men in verse 5, that uh, the light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not comprehend it, that the life was the light of men. Sorry, verse 4. The light of men. Ladies, you're not off the hook. It's for you too. Men is ton anthropon. It is the generic word for all humanity. The light of everybody. Luke 11.35. Jesus says, watch out. That the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when a lamp illumines you with its rays. Now I'm going to go deeper into this tonight. I have a special message for the kids. This is funny to me. Leslie told the kids, Rick, Pastor Rick has a special message for you that he's going to deliver tonight. And Naomi came home and said, Dad. Miss Leslie said, you have a special message for us. What is it? And I'm like, I don't know. Naomi was shocked. You don't know? I said, well, let me pray about it. I'll have a special message. She she couldn't believe that I didn't already have a special message pre-written, pre-prepared several weeks ago when Miss Leslie told us Pastor Rick had a special message. (laughs) So now I have to bring a special message to the kids. You know how hard that is? Okay, side note. I know we're going long here. I don't really care. To have to... 
To have to stand up here, it's one thing to, to speak to adults. Okay, I can do that. We can talk about the Logos, you know, the Word of God, and the, and the togetherness, and Father leaning into Son, and we can get into some of this deep stuff. And then it's, it's another thing to talk to kids. I can talk to kids about Jesus, and the more, more simple things of the Word, just kind of bring it, you know. See, but to talk to kids and adults at the same time, little ones in angel costumes, while their parents are sitting out here, I'm like, what? Special message is there. Come on back tonight and you'll find out. It's good. It's a special message. Anyway, light. So, we're, But we'll talk more about light tonight. We will. But I want you to get just this much and we'll be done. What happened in the creation of the world? Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. What happened? There was light. You see, because the darkness could not comprehend it, or the other translation of that word, katalambano is the word in the Greek, and it also is translated overpower. Darkness couldn't overpower it. God spoke those words. The word spoke the word, let there be light, and darkness ran Headed for the hills, disappeared, couldn't handle it, could not overpower the light. And the same God who spoke light into existence, who spoke life into existence, would would speak light into your heart, into your mind, into my understanding. The question is, do you want it? Over in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in the nighttime hours, Nick at night, and he says in verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What does that mean? We'll tell the kids tonight. I can't wait. (laughs) But the point is this. Jesus says, I can give you light. The philosophers say enlightenment, but it's so much better than that. Did the enlightenment really enlighten this world? Is the world better off because of the enlightenment? You know why it's not? Because light can't come from man. Light can only come from the source of light itself. Himself, the Word, who is with God and who was God. He brings the light. Get this, Jesus was alive, is alive to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story. Borrowing from Charles Dickens. Every one of us sitting here this morning, every one of us have life. I know it. Some of you don't look like it, but most of you, we all have life in us because of Him. But there's more to this life than life. In Jesus is life. And that life is the light of men. Enlightenment, understanding, an awareness, a spiritual discernment you cannot have without Jesus. And people might say, well, that's arrogant. I'm just telling you the truth here. I'm not saying you're smarter because you're a follower of Jesus, but you get things that someone who doesn't have the light does not get. Well, I don't believe that. That's because you don't have the light. Well, that's not fair. Anyone can have the light. Anyone. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a brilliant theologian. You don't have to be a studied scholar. Any man, woman, or child can have the light. Because the light comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The eye-opening, the removing of the veil, the awareness of who God is, of God's love for you, of His desire to be together with you. How do I get that light? John 1.12 tells us, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Rachel, come on. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not overpower it. Amen? Let's pray together. Our most holy Father, most righteous Son, most intimate Spirit of the living God, we bow to You today. And we come in awe at the simple words of this Gospel. Words that as we begin to try to plumb their meaning, we cannot get to the bottom of. Fathers, we said, a wading pool for children an unfathomable ocean for the highest philosopher or theologian. An amazing truth that You love us, Lord. Because that's where this is going. To begin with the Word who is God and to come so quickly in just three chapters to God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Lord, it brings to us the stunning reality that we are disciples whom Jesus loved. And then anyone who would receive, who would accept Jesus this morning will be the beloved of God. And so, Father, I ask that You will tap our hearts today. It's my prayer, Father, not a single person will walk out of here without recognizing your love for them, your desire to lean into them and them to lean into you, your invitation to life. May it be known by everyone who joins us here today. May it be known, Father, far beyond us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together. Prayer team can come up. If you would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, come and have life. Come forward this morning while we sing.